The Mysteries of Watergate, Episode 12, Dean's Historical Blunder. I want to talk to you tonight from my heart on a subject of deep concern to every American. Those who hate you don't win unless you hate them. I've been charged with involvement in a full, free, and absolute pardon unto Richard Nixon. What has come to be known as the Watergate Affair. I'm your narrator, John O'Connor, author of Postgate, How the Washington Post Betrayed Deep Throat, Covered Up Watergate, and Began Today's Partisan Advocacy Journalism. At this far remove, there can be little doubt but that the CIA had achieved its main goal, at least as we have here hypothesized, in the first burglary of late May 1972. The agency had made a clear record that the White House certainly, through White House Counsel Dean, less certainly through Attorney General Mitchell, approved its program of taping prostitutes. It could now point to the payment of the burglars from CRP funds, controlled also by the White House, which Hunt would say was authorized by Dean and Mitchell, both lawyers acting on behalf of the president. Any bugs purchased for this first burglary were paid by the White House and could therefore be used with impunity in subsequent missions. This claimed approval could be stretched a long way to include ratification of the entire prostitute taping program of past and future years. When Hunt learned to his surprise around June 12 of the plans to break in to the DNC a second time, he voiced adamant opposition to Liddy, ultimately to no avail. Hunt understood that the CIA had achieved its goal with the White House approval of wiretapping prostitutes. A second entry would be all risk and no reward for the agency. Liddy also disapproved, mainly because of the strain on his budget for a seemingly barren target which had produced little so far. But his dislike for Magruder kept him from appearing too fearful, a big bugaboo for the macho man Liddy who despised Magruder. In the first burglary, the CIA-controlled Cubans photographed only a few documents, to Liddy's chagrin. Indeed, the only photographs later produced were seemingly of trophy papers spread on a carpet by gloved hands, complete with identifying DNC letterhead. Because of these photos, there would be no doubt in any future inquiry that the team, financed by White House money, broke into the DNC and wiretapped phone calls. But these pictures had no intelligence or informational value. The photographs also had the purpose of corroborating that the break-in was aimed at Larry O'Brien. Proof of the targeting of O'Brien was an important justification for those in the White House and CRP not knowing of the true secret agenda of the break-in. So if there was now to be a second break-in seeking massive document copying, how do we now explain this mission if only a few documents were copied on the first burglary? With Hunt's opposition and a clear lack of necessity under our presidential approval hypothesis, the impetus for this second break-in appears to have come from non-agency personnel, in other words, from the White House or the CRP, and someone other than Liddy. Who would that be and why? One candidate for giving this order, Magruder, was a notorious weakling and a non-self-starter who, we can infer, received his oppo document copying orders from above him. The only logical candidate for the order is Dean who, we must add, still denies all. Magruder first gave Liddy a heads-up about the possible second burglary on the afternoon of June 9, 1972, and issued the order the following Monday, June 12. Did something happen that day, June 9, 1972, which caused what appears to have been this sudden desire, not evidence before, to copy copious documents? Let's talk a bit about the adventures of our engaging bad boy, Philip Mackin Bailey. 
On one festive but reckless occasion, Bailey met with his like-minded buddies and passed around nude pictures of a female, a University of Maryland student, with whom many of them one wild night had had their way, termed colloquially pulling a train. Unfortunately for the mad barrister, one Sybarite brought with him a straight government lawyer who, shocked, blew the whistle on the whole affair. It turns out that one of the several train engineers had given the girl $20 on that steamy night. The sex now became technically prostitution because of the money having been transferred, and Bailey had brought the girl across state lines for immoral purposes, a Mann Act violation, a federal crime. His office was raided with address books and other documents seized in April 1972. The indictment came back June 8, 1972. On June 9, the next day, 1972, the Washington Star News wrote about the indictment, which was limited to several similarly victimized young ladies, the first being the University of Maryland co-ed we have spoken about. But the article about the indictment went far beyond these few individual cases and spoke far more broadly of a call girl, quote, ring, unquote, run by Bailey, which involved executive office employees, including, quote, one lawyer at the White House, unquote. On June 9, after reading the article, an alarmed John Dean telephoned the prosecutor of Bailey, John Rudy, summoning him to the White House to bring with him all the evidence he had uncovered. The ostensible purpose of the meeting was for Dean to investigate the involvement of the executive office building personnel. Dean examined the address books of Bailey, in which there were five references, unbeknownst to Rudy, to Dean's then-girlfriend Maureen Biner, a.k.a. quote, M period B period, unquote, or quote, clout, unquote, or quote, M period Biner, unquote. The reference to clout was to her White House counsel boyfriend, a man of presumed influence. Dean reportedly mumbled to Rudy that the article likely had been leaked by Democrats. While Dean denies ordering the second break-in, others have later affirmed his role, most significantly Hunt and Magruder. Certainly, the Star News article gives him a motive to seek a large cache of documents the burglars planned on copying. Magruder told Liddy, in essence, that the target was the dirt the Democrats had on the Republicans. Magruder did not specify the location of the targeted desk, which Liddy assumed was O'Brien's. But we know that the article referred to, quote, one lawyer at the White House, unquote. And it is also undeniable that Maureen Biner, later Maureen Dean, had known the Madam Kathy Dieter through her real name, Heidi Riken, for some time and was close with her. All of this is simply part of the circumstantial evidence suggesting that Dean may have felt vulnerable to the reference in the June 9 Star News article about, quote, one lawyer from the White House, unquote, having been involved in a, quote, call girl ring, period, unquote. How does Dean's involvement in either or both of these burglaries, more importantly the second, affect our analysis of Nixon's guilt and the shaping of the cover-up? It is hard to discern where in the cover-up Dean's raging conflict of interest ended and his legal ineptitude began. Let's digress for a moment. When Dean first spoke with Gordon Liddy after the burglary arrests, the crazed but martially disciplined Liddy offered, if deemed necessary, to be shot. But he certainly offered to keep his mouth shut. An experienced litigation lawyer would know that Liddy has been a central figure who could have provided everyone a defense, in short, a fall guy, and he would not need to perjure himself to do so. All that was required was a public pronouncement from Liddy's lawyer that Liddy was off on his own rogue operation in the burglary, having been turned down, as he was, twice by Mitchell. And he could have said that there was a national security need to examine the DNC Fidelista contributions. 
Such an approach would have given all the defendants some leeway to fashion a defense, with Magruder claiming his disbursement of CRP funds to Liddy was intended for more traditional security measures. Secondly, it is widely recognized that even for employees charged with a crime, the employer can and should indemnify the employees and agents for legal expenses, unless and until the court determines that the employee acted in bad faith and not in the interest of the employer. The CRP could thus have provided a sound basis for openly providing indemnity payments for the defendant's legal fees and even continued salaries while on administrative leave for employees such as Liddy. But it is clear that the calm but desperate dean never considered any sophisticated legal strategies. Ultimately, the White House relied upon, as White House counsel, a lawyer with four months of private legal experience, none in litigation, whose limited private practice work was marred by charges of unethical conduct. Let's discuss now what Dean did do. For the next nine months post-arrest, he professed to his superiors that he knew of no White House involvement in the burglary, which became Nixon's lifeline, but one Dean knew was false. Of course, because Dean was both conflicted and inexperienced, he did not advise his clients early on about avoiding obstruction of justice or cover-up criminal liability. So Dean's advice at the outset, with no disclosure to his colleagues of his exposure, was abominable. Citing the advice of John Mitchell, in our view likely falsely, Dean advised the president's inner circle to tell the CIA to call off the FBI's Mexican money trail investigation on the grounds of potential interference with the CIA operation. This was untrue, even though, ironically, Watergate was, in fact, a CIA operation. How do we know that Dean did not get this advice from Mitchell? Kolodny proves quite strongly that Dean had no opportunity to confer with Mitchell before offering this extremely silly advice. But halting this innocuous Mexican part of the investigation was all risk and no reward. Any good lawyer would know that the investigators would eventually prove CRP funding of the burglary. So why bother to stop the Mexican investigation, essentially meaningless money trolling? It has been suggested that Nixon did not wish exposure of a major anonymous donor, Dwayne Andreas. But Andreas's contribution would ultimately have been discovered by the FBI, and in any case likely remain confidential with the FBI. So this act of obstruction concocted by Dean was both silly and harmful, because eventually it became the basis on which Nixon's advisors told him he had to resigned from office. This act of obstruction was clearly shown on the White House tapes. The other clear act of presidential obstruction occurred, again on the advice of Dean, in his March 21, 1973 Oval Office meeting with Nixon, where he lured Nixon into committing to raise $1 million for Howard Hunt. Trying to prevent his own exposure, Dean was pushing Nixon to assert executive privilege to prevent Dean from testifying. Dean did this by finally revealing for the first time to Nixon the potential culpability of Haldeman aide Gordon Strahan, thus implicating Haldeman, and Dwight Chapin, Nixon's aide. Dean was hoping that this revelation to Nixon would cause him to assert executive privilege over any of the inner circle testifying, which of course would include Dean. Dean, of course, was still concealing his own substantive criminal liability for the burglary. Dean, after sucking Nixon into agreeing to raise money for Hunt, but not convincing him to assert privilege, either or both executive privilege and or attorney-client privilege, immediately went to his own counsel for advice. He then began cutting deals with the prosecutors, 
This is Dean, using his knowledge of Nixon's Dean-inspired cover-up as bait. Dean, of course, became the first and most powerful witness against Nixon. While testifying as if a Boy Scout caught in bad company, Dean professed no prior knowledge or pre-approval of the burglaries. With no one else to contradict him, Dean easily escaped exposure for the burglaries while admitting, as he must, to the cover-up. Thereafter, Nixon's criminal guilt was based upon his obstruction of justice counseled by this conflicted and unethical lawyer. With the other burglary defendants silent, except for the dishonest Magruder, who implicated Mitchell falsely, there was no opportunity for the public to comprehend the glaring but hidden from public view unanswered questions of Watergate and their answers. Was the burglary an event having nothing to do with the campaign other than the campaign contributions paying for it? Another question. Was it an operation geared to listening to prostitutes? Another question. Was it an initiative pushed by the CIA? One more. Were the Democrats running a prostitute referral operation? Was Nixon lured into obstruction by fraudulent counsel? If any of the above questions are answered in the affirmative, then an entirely new front would have been opened in the impeachment inquiry, and many honest legislators and sympathetic citizens would have been drawn to Nixon's defense. Unfortunately, each of the major witnesses had strong motives to lie. McCord, Magruder, Dean. The public was fooled, and our history deceived. Could journalists, though, have easily found and printed the truth? Could the country have been better enlightened by a media more concerned with the facts than by partisan effect? Let's consider the effect that partisan reporting can have on our nation's history. Had the Post reporters published what they knew about the tawdry nature of the sexual assignations being overheard. More investigation would have been required. Eventually, it would locate a call girl operation. Fine, one may respond, but how would that help us get to the bottom of this? First, we would learn that the madam was one Kathy Dieter. Then, eventually, she would be revealed to be, in fact, one Heidi Riken, the lush blonde to whom we have been referring. So what, you may ask, if we can identify Heidi Riken as the true name of Kathy Dieter? Well, Heidi Riken was Maureen Beinert Dean's best friend, as Maureen wrote later in her own book, meeting her in South Lake Tahoe before driving with her to live in D.C. Heidi was an attractive presence at John and Maureen Dean's wedding in October 1972, also well known as the girlfriend of gambling king Joe Nesline. Our point is that if the Post had revealed the truth, about the sexual target, and if the public had known of the true target of the burglaries, it would have later looked upon the testimony of burglar James McCord askance. Thank you for listening. I have just completed a book on the same subject, entitled The Mysteries of Watergate, What Really Happened. While it covers the material in our podcast, I have added two chapters of contextual materials and remove the repetition needed for a podcast. For those enjoying this series, it will serve as a valuable historical reference. For your non-listening friends, it will prove enlightening and entertaining. Thank you for your support.